0: I expect you have heard of Richard Parker. He's the most famous tiger in literature. I'm speaking of the novel Life of Pi by Jan Martel. It's magical realism, of course, and a wondrous story. A 26 foot long lifeboat on which are bobbing together a hyena, an orangutan, a zebra, a 450-pound royal Bengal tiger called the aforementioned Richard Parker, and a fairly religious 16-year-old protagonist, Pai Patel. When I was teaching Life of Pai 15 years ago in Elmira, a boy commented with his eyes shining, this story is real, isn't it? He so wanted that to be the case. I replied, it's an extraordinary piece of fiction, so to you it is real. The chance of surviving on a lifeboat with a tiger would be fairly slim, of course. He, he was right there on that Noah's Ark of a boat with that fierce, fictive tiger, Richard Parker. Such is the power of a well-told tale. I'll tell you one more. I will never be a high-altitude mountain climber. That's outside my comfort zone, and I've had zero training for it. I do, however, get inordinate vicarious Pleasure in reading about the climbers of the world's tallest mountains and I've been up there many times with many writers. John Krakauer's Into Thin Air and probably 50 other adventure stories, uh, hair-raising climbing stories. Satellite phones in the internet of course have made the high Himalayas and peaks everywhere seem much less remote. Everest is the tallest, of course. In my head, I've been up the Western Coombe, up the Coombe Icefall and the Hillary Steppe, up Karakoram II, i.e., K2, more popularly known, that massive protrusion along the China Pakistan border. I've been on top of Annapurna, Nanga Nangaparbat in a well told story. Astonishing panoramas, no matter where you stand. Skies smeared uh, with stars. I've read about the death zone in all its perilous conditions the climber faces in that oxygen-starved, refrigerated pandemonium, as some have called it, above 8,000 meters. Ballistic, skull-splitting headaches, hacking coughs that can break climbers' ribs, stupefaction when making the simplest decisions, like getting your boots on in the morning, Sort of mental bankruptcy. Sub-zero cold stabbing to the bone. Hurricane force winds that could tip over a semi-trailer truck. Maybe you'd prefer cerebral edema, leakage of fluid into the brain. Or pulmonary edema, fluid leaking into your lungs. Or snow blindness, burning the cornea from ultraviolet rays. Climbers say it's kind of like climbing inside a milk bottle. There's the famous two o'clock rule, summit by two or head back down, period. And many deaths in mountaineering occur, as you know, on the down climb, not the ascent. Why would anyone do this? (laughs) I'd be glad to know. I don't know, but we readers are right there, right? That's the power of a a good book. Jesus himself was a first-class storyteller, And in Lent, we hear some of the hardest stories of Jesus' life as he approaches Jerusalem and the cross. Today's lectionary readings feature his story of the lost son, or really two lost sons, one of his best-known parables. This story appears only in the Gospel of Luke. Although 30 or more parables make it into the synoptic accounts, it's this story For some reason, it seems to have fascinated artists and has been told in medieval art time and time again, almost to the exclusion of most of the rest of the parables. Rembrandt's famous painting of the prodigal's return comes to mind. The adjective prodigal means several things. It means rashly extravagant, like a prodigal expenditure on weaponry, say, or a prodigal lifestyle. Prodigal also means given in abundance, lavish, profuse, as in prodigal praise. I've pondered this story of the prodigal father, the father whose love is lavish. However, there's a problem with this story, and I would call it listener fatigue, This story is so familiar. What more can we possibly extract from it? And anyone from a church going background probably knows what I'm talking about, right? I've heard that on the internet you can purchase prodigal son boxer shorts. (laughs) For those online, that was, I think, Margaret Butt saying she wants a pair. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> oh dear. We've been asked in probably a dozen or more homilies to identify with the wayward son, who in our context abuses drugs, steals from his family, manip- manipulates him, etc. I love the King James versions, uh, putting it in 1611. The younger son wastes his substance in riotous living. It's a wonderful sum up, isn't it? And I bet some of you, uh, it describes whatever happened. (laughs) Yet Yet he comes home to blessings and love. To some degree, we're all prodigals needing sanctuary. To some degree, we're all like the elder brother too, grumbling that our inheritance may be jeopardized by somebody who gets more. The son demands his inheritance prior to his father's death. This would be a clear message in Middle Eastern culture that the son as much as wishes his father dead. Yet the father grants his son's request and bears up under what would have been excruciating public shame. The young son turns his share into cash and departs to to enjoy its proceeds. But as we know, extravagant living reduces him to penury. His friends make themselves scarce. He takes a menial job, especially abhorrent to a Jew for whom pigs would definitely have been unclean. He's so famished he could have devoured the carob pods that the pigs were eating. He returns and asks for reinstatement. This image of God waiting for a wayward child is a deeply moving and a deeply embedded one. What is remarkable is that this father is able to transform his anger into grace and compassion. Before the son can even say he's sorry, the father who has come running to greet him finds the best robe and shoes, shoes being the prerogative then of a free man, not a slave. The entire village erupts with joy. Now wouldn't most parents run with open arms in this situation? After all, we parents do take thought for our children year in and out until they're capable of navigating on their own. We provide wholesome food, clean clothing, an inviting bed. It matters to us that they develop healthy lungs, supple limbs, Supple minds too and harmonious relationships. We would do anything for our children when they're young or when they're adults too. So what does this familiar story demand of us, call out to us on this day? Jesus did have a habit of extending a welcome to known public sinners. And the Lucan text beforehand says, the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told this and a number of other stories. So today's text is about a party to end all celebrations. I remember a particularly splendid wedding reception I attended years ago in Seattle, Washington. High above the floor, there was a mirrored sphere that revolved, glittering like a jewel. It was some party. Everyone loves a party. Maybe it's a dinner party, a birthday, anniversary, a graduation. It feels like there have been fewer of them in recent months, doesn't it? Our party to-do list might include reminders such as to purchase flowers, strawberries, bake a three-layer cake, set out stemware, sauté some fish. It doesn't really matter the occasion. We all need celebrative events that bring out the best in us lift us above the ordinary round, especially in a time of COVID. Scholar, Dr. Ken Bailey, who taught in the Middle East for 40 some years, comments that the son returns home only because he's homeless, penniless, filthy, starving. There's nothing in the text to suggest he's aware of his father's desolated heart. He's not in touch far as I can see from the story with his need to reconcile. As he nears his village, he probably expects to be greeted by anger and rejection by the community. Yet he sees his father running, running of all things. In Middle Eastern culture, it would have been shameful to run and expose your legs. A transformational moment. In this parable, says Bailey, Jesus redefines repentance as accepting that one is found. Then there's the famous elder brother standing in the alien corn. The elder brother cannot even bring himself to say, my brother, he speaks contemptuously, this son of yours. The father reminds his eldest that all the resources of the home were his for the asking. One can be lost even at home and living in comfort. Does that older brother join the party? We are never told. Maybe Jesus was waiting for the Pharisees, his frequent conversation partners, to offer some kind of verdict. I'll bet they did. But if ever there was a story in all of the scriptures about God's fervent love and our missing the wonder of that fact, this is it. God's love invites both to obedience and to celebration. All things including our failures can be made new. It's Lent 4 and Jesus is asking us to accompany him. We pray with our minds, our bodies, and we walk with Jesus, our friend and brother, even to the cross in this season. This is not something we do easily. We try to let go of things that distract us, keep us from our deepest needs, overindulgence in food or drink, perhaps vapid entertainment, overwork, endless scrolling, scrolling. This is the gospel, the party for the outcast and the gospel for the in-group too. God is at home. It is we who have wandered away. And this parable ends as all good stories should with love and a hot meal. What of us in our time? Life in our Technopoly, our iPod nation. The sense that the center is not holding, as poet W.B. Yeats expressed it, things are falling apart, atomizing. Perverse sadness for many over the ridiculous war in Ukraine, described recently by a journalist as the vestibule of hell. We can't all meet in the bend in the river where the cottonwoods grow, as John Wayne put it in his early movies. It's easy to see the beginning of things, not so easy to see the end. Do you remember Miss Haversham? She was a character in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations from 1861. She's a wealthy older woman. used to be called that dreadful noun, a spinster once jilted at the altar. She insists on wearing her wedding dress for the rest of her life. She lives in a ruined mansion, sitting in the decay of her never-eaten moldering wedding cake. Although she's been portrayed in film versions as fairly old, Dickens' writing indicates she's only in her mid-fifties. Her whole life is a sad shrine to a past loss. Miss Havisham is entombed by her loss. She's surely one of Dickens' most Gothic characters. Friends, we are Easter people. God both welcomes us home and has made a home with us. We need not be entombed by our losses like Miss Havisham. It is true that during this pandemic, that endless ride on the gloom train, our culture has experienced what some writers have called a great reckoning, deep dissatisfaction that is, with the relentless pursuit of wealth, with meaningless jobs to which many people have given the best years of their lives. Many feel unmoored, disappointed, uncertain, what the coming days will hold. St. Paul wrote this from prison in Rome to the Christian congregation he established at Philippi. The one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And from today's text in Second Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away, see, Everything has become new. O Lord, we have put our trust in you. Never let us be confounded. May it be so. Thanks be to God.